0: Welcome to Sugar Nutmeg. This is Alexandra, and this is Ruth. In this episode, we are very excited to talk to Sarn Otamachot about his ongoing research on the diaspora, war, and tourism complex. Sarn is a
1: filmmaker, curator, and photographer who combines academic research into his art practice, which looks into the subtleties and overlooked aspects of daily life, especially for the Southeast Asian
0: diaspora. Originally from Thailand and now in Germany, he co-founded Untitled, a Berlin-based collective of Thai creatives. His films,
1: research, and curatorial practice stem from the exploration of post-colonial existence, migrant spaces, and queer identity. Let's feast and find out.
2: There's this thing called Third Cinema Manifesto, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, and they wrote it very cool about so they talk about the fact that filmmakers back then in the 70s tend to be just a mirror, but not transformation. Like mm. that films were made to copy what is already there, but did not try enough to mm. change. Mm. And and I, that that's sort of what I actually struck me. I like how can we make projects, not just art, that, that can really change something? Not just the perspective of people who watch it, but people who work, who make this art, which we cannot make. Like I cannot, you know, I cannot make them by myself. I need someone to act, I need someone to take camera. Mm-hmm. So how can we make this kind of projects that really involve people and create a kind of social movement from it? And there are a lot of interesting projects coming up a lot, like not just me, but I like, mean a lot that, you know, we're trying to archive, we're trying to recognize activists. And not just in a kind of NGO style of, you know, recording something, but like really like artistic and thought provoking. In Germany, I can also, I think about now like um, Rue de Lan, which is um, a web archive of um, refugees and people who came to Germany, both from Vietnamese and other, other minorities, quote unquote, um, parts, which is an amazing project.
0: So yeah, what's the difference back then? between the art scenes in Thailand and in Berlin, and what makes you want to go to Berlin specifically to pursue your art endeavour?
2: I I did not, first I did not, I didn't come to Berlin directly for the arts, like in the kind of arts. Um, mm. I honestly just want to leave Thailand. Um, and also another reason was that I, I had interest in German language when I was young and then I didn't pursue it. But it was super random, like, it's literally so random. I went to a bookstore, I got it, the closest book to me was a German language and I'm like, why not?
0: Uh, and
2: it looks interesting. I mean,
0: yeah. Um, yeah. And then Yeah, I mean I agree oh, with sorry. the German language is super fascinating.
2: I mean it used to be fascinating and now not much <laughs> since I, I cannot can partially speak it now. I, I I'm finishing my study in German program, so But it also, I mean, it it proved to be pretty useful because then there are a lot of things in German perspective, in the archives, in in everything that that Mm -hmm. you can actually research. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, like, I mean, now since I'm doing this project about the the Cold War time and, and the whole tourism and sex trafficking, like there's so much, a lot from German perspective that are not from US perspective regarding sex trafficking and stuff. Mm-hmm. And and it's really interesting that if you can read the language, mm-hmm. then then mm-hmm. hell yeah, then you can research. Um, there are two questions. One question didn't, I didn't answer from Ruth. But anyway, okay, just very short. On that note, um, like when I live in Bangkok, it was also not, I mean, back then, like 2000, let's say 13, 12. Mm-hmm. It was something going on, but like not much. and And it was a bit sort of, in my feeling, it was a bit more kind of elite, um, like in a kind of literal sense, like people dress up, go to galleries, and they are like, you know, Instagram celebrities. And I think the turn was sort of, I'm not sure, but the turn might be like 2016, or I don't know, that, that you know, there are more kind of local, independent, who are not elites who make art and make their own gallery in space. And now also since the founding of um Con- and Manifesto, they are, so they are the collective, that work in the Northeast in the Isan area and doing super cool stuff. And they're not necessarily from, from the elite sense. They are just local people making art. And um, so things are changing for the better in the art scene. Yeah.
0: I was there in 2016 and I went to one of the, I think, the National Museum or something. There are some like contemporary art, but at the same time, uh, Thailand just lost their beloved king. So there's this sense of like, nationalistic, in paintings, and everything. So I was just like, they really do love their king. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's, it's crazy about, about, about that, but also how how his death becomes, like, I mean, you know, for a nationalist frame of work, um, also his presence becomes so big that it overshadows mm-hmm. what the artist might actually mean or I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of artists who need to survive mm, yeah, getting mm-hmm. funded by the government, but deeply they don't believe it at all and that shit. So, you know, it be kind of makes things a bit more too simplified. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Right. I'm curious about the subject of colonialism in Thailand because from what I've gathered and I studied, like Thailand never been like officially, officially colonized by other countries, right? Because they what they say is like Thailand survived an attempt of colonization. So I'm just wondering what's the idea of colonization in Thailand. And well, the idea of colonization is like, there's the power from outside coming in. Right. But now that your King is in German, so basically there's a power from outside ruling the country. So I just want to know your opinion on that.
2: Oh, yes. Yeah, sure. I mean, but I mean first and foremost, since the deal of the of the invasion to quote unquote Indochina was it was actually planned or kind of in the negotiation enough to be that Siam back then happened to be the buffer state between between British and French. Mm. And and it got a bit more complicated because the Siamese king back then tried to also kind of counteract that because he actually studied in the West. So he hired some ethnographers to research or, let's say, manufacture up the concept of race. So they call themselves Siamese race that they serve to protect, to live in their own land. And and this kind of also raised the topic of, you know, racism already, not necessarily on skin color, but on superiority. Mm -hmm. And that Kim claimed that, you know, we are more superior than, than the Vietnamese or the Lao, so we can have our own lands. And that kind of might contribute to the fact that that it was not officially quote-unquote colonized, although the king decided to adopt a lot of Western infrastructures to rule the land, so, you know, nationalism and stuff. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of how it got to be, and it, it created a problem actually until now. And, for example, the issue with Cambodian temples, which was the issue in something 2010-ish, that... Thailand tried to claim that, you know, it actually belonged to Thailand because we, I don't know, won some Cambodian king. And on the Cambodian side, they say that, but this is our architecture and stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
2: but the, all these problems come from the fact that we read history from, from the point of now, you know. So you see it from like Thailand, Cambodia. But the fact is originally, it was just the kings and colonizers who just defined what was it. Also on the issue of the king, it was also because of the Cold War narrative of how the like, king was established also again as an institution during the 50s to counter the communist emergence of the mm. Vietnam. Mm. And actually it was, a German, uh, was an um, American government who funded these ethnographers and stuff to, to mark down that Thailand needs a king so that they won't become communist. Mm. And usually this must kind of go into the discourse about the king too, because usually people think that the king has been there for thousands of years. The fact is that no, it has not been an institution, Mm. not much by the Cold War period.
1: Mm -hmm. So how did they select who to become king during that Cold War period?
0: I mean, they did in Cambodia too, right? The American picked like like a guide to become yeah a king. Lanol, yeah. Uh, no, before Lanol, the king. Yeah, Sihanouk. Sihanouk, I I so. yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah, 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 Exactly. Um, it's it depends on the claim. I will not speak for Cambodia. I mean, Sihanouk. It's already complicated how the royal families work. But I think in case of Thailand, yeah, it is really this kind of you know um, a royalist which could be read as a bit of colonialist. You know, they, they are the local elites who profit from this infrastructure. And they show this blood lineage um, also because um, the King Nine and his brother were born in the West. And mm-hmm. there was this whole kind of relationship with the West. Like, I think Nine mm-hmm. was born in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So it's like the whole, you know, kind of this continental relationship thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that why Thailand... Um, help the Nazis, right, or were an ally in some way. And then when the Japanese invaded Southeast Asia, basically, like, uh, Southeast Asian countries really tried to, like, fight against the Japanese. But Thailand, from what I've gathered, was the only country that ended up becoming an ally with the Japanese. Um, And I'm just curious, like, how that
2: came about. Yeah, good point. I mean, basically what happened was that Japan offered to to the government back at that time named People Songkram that they will um, take some lost territories back to Thailand and it goes back mm-hmm. to Indochina conflict again. Mm-hmm. So the claim was that Thailand owned this um, a bit of part of a bit of Cambodia, a bit of mm-hmm. Laos. That's their claim. Like, I don't say that. And Japan then told this government that um, if we win the war, you will take these places back, and that's why the people in Chongram government just like, okay, I love you, um, please come and help us. Mm-hmm. And they actually uh, initiate a kind of this territorial conference in Japan during the Second World War, and hence also Thailand then joined the war. Although they didn't, they didn't suffer too much of casualties. You know, like not many soldiers were lost, but they kind of performatively joined. So. They sent some soldiers to Berlin even, and, mm-hmm. and hence this um, Hitler Bunker that I showed you.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: it was actually an artwork of one artist named Aaron Chang. Um, I can recommend people to follow him. He made one video work exactly about this. And yeah, so that's, that's how the story goes. And it's also kind of a bit, it is relationship between this government, like people of Long Kram during the you know, Second World War, who wanted to be like a king figure. But he's not mm. a king he's just sort of let's say this sort of mussolini style dude you know mm. and that's why he got into conflict with the royalists also after but that's another story
0: right right i mean it's also the same uh with what happened in indonesia because the japanese they said like if you join us then we're going to promise you um independence but then we experience like far worse condition than we were under the Netherlands and then we tried to rebel, right? I don't know, maybe it's a war tactic. Yeah. It, All
2: these kind of tactics, yeah. yeah.
0: There's like a prevailing
1: story in Indonesia that three years of uh, Japanese occupation was a lot more brutal and violent in terms of like the torture and rape than 300 years of Dutch colonization and like they're both like really bad um and i guess it's just Mm. i don't know um actually speaking of speaking of like regions can you talk more about the southern part of thailand and how because i read like they want to enact sharia law in the southern part of thailand and i actually didn't know this that there's a you know muslim majority area in thailand until i read about this
2: uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely also a complex issue that, that I, I know a person who knows much more than me. He's actually finishing his PhD. Um, he, he wrote a PhD. I mean, he's actually publishing it about Actually, the whole identity of what the Southern Thai means. Mm. And because the, the, the complexity is also that they want to be neither Malaysians nor Thai. Like, it's sort of like their own set of things. And it is super complex thing. Mm. Mm. From, from what I know, they have been negotiating this also since like, the end of Second World War, you know, when everyone tried to claim independence. They came to the uh, political negotiating table, like representative from the South, Try to have their own kind of autonomy within the region, um, but they were all completely like um, disregarded when the military came to power mm. in 1953.
0: Mm. Well, it brings brings us to the the topic of uh, colonization and capitalism are the factors for like new uh, transformation of what is Thailand's identity, right? My my first question is what what is Thai-ness before and now, what's the, the difference?
2: I mean, I mean, I mean, it changes and, and I mean, it's always, I think the problem with it first is that, you know, what I told you earlier about this concept of race and, and then, because Thailand also changed its name from Siam to Thai. So mm. starting from that in the period after the democratic revolution and they changed the name, that dude who was, in the part of changing the name, he he also used this exactly the same narrative of the race, the Thai race, and that we are actually not actually different from others, and then we have our own land, and that's actually how nation states work, and actually then imperialism and that. So it has been defined since that point that you know what it has be, mm. and I think that it makes our topic in a contemporary time much. In a way, it can, it can be counterproductive sometimes because then, you know, in the reality, if you really search your origins and stuff, you are not just Thai, you are like a mix of everything. Like, I am personally, my family come from southern of China and I don't even speak the language. So, you know, that they might come from even ethnic minorities then. So and, then we don't know what it is actually. And I think that the, the contemporary time is just kind of, you know how to operate because when you go to cultural institutions then you say okay thailand thainess or when you operate within within thailand even so so yeah
1: cuz you you one of the notes that you wrote was being stuck in thainess um and i guess i'm i'm just curious about yeah so we Chris in
0: like yeah
2: um I, used, I also talk it from, from, let's say, European context in the sense of like, you know, it has been the conversation for a while in the West that people are stuck in a kind of this label and then it creates an association to other things mm-hmm. that you might not want to be associated with mm-hmm. or it associates so much. An easy example is that I was in, during the, you know, networking in Berlinale and I talking to people and they all said that like, why don't you want to do a film in Thailand? And my question back to them is like, do I have a right to make film in Germany or to use the German actors? And there are also a lot of people of color in Germany too.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
2: so, you know, and, and that's, that actually affects us in a lot of ways. And I believe maybe you too, you know, when you get casting or you want to initiate some cultural products and they all say like, oh yeah, you're Indonesian, do your Indonesian stuff. And
1: yeah, like, yeah, Yeah, all the time. But also something that I've noticed is that Like, if we're talking about it from the Western perspective and what they want to invest, right? Like, Hollywood is now investing more in Asian films from Asia instead of Asian American films. You know, yesterday there was this article on Netflix that Netflix is investing $500 million to cinema from Korea, but then Korean Americans don't have funding to make you know, film in, in America. So it's like, I I guess like that made me think a lot about, you know, like, do I even want to make work here in the U (laughs) S like, is it better for me to just go back to Indonesia and make work there? I mean, it's, it's all like, you know, pandering to Western perspective, but it's just,
2: I do agree with you what you said. I mean, it has been the conversation in art scene here, actually, even, even talking about what German means, you know, I mean, I did one even um, proposal to the project, and the owner of the of the gallery told me that like, why you don't have any German speaking persons in the list? And it turned out that all these French strange names that I sent them, they are all born in Germany, but they just think already that they don't speak German. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think now it's the kind of time that people try to make it more, you know, more important. That we talk about this. Mm-hmm. But on that note, we also know that in, in our countries, um, there's not much, quote unquote, much big opportunities, especially, you know, you don't get cultural funding from Ministry yeah. of Culture because yeah. you're all politically critical. So we need a kind of this balance, I think, like on one hand, the interest from the West to import products from our kind of, you know, dictatorial governments. I mean, context. I mean, mm-hmm. on the other hand, we also needed support for people who live here, especially also illegal migrants and a lot of people who deserve attention. yeah, mm-hmm.
0: Is the new bill or act has helped the illegal immigrants to become legal in a way? Is it really as what they say it is that, you know, that now it's become easier for people to come in and get Jobs or is it just on the paper?
2: I I don't know much about the the legalities. Of, I'm pretty stupid. <laughs> um.
1: We're just curious because, like, I know I can't speak for Ruth, but I I have this fantasy of like Berlin, and I'm like, how do I how do I live in Berlin?
2: <laughs> oh, I mean, um, I would not dare to speak for everyone. I mean, at least for me, um, bureaucracy here is pretty pretty hard. And I mean they, they're trying to they're trying to like support for people who don't have monies, but then you know it's still not going to a lot of illegal migrants and refugees who are betting wedding gears for the asylums. You no, know, I mean for example, I met a person from Tamil Refugee here. And it has been rarely recognized by the German state, and this is since the nineties. This is not from 2005 from this refugee crisis. It's from yeah. the 90s. Mm-hmm. So there's still a lot of work for the mm-hmm. German bureaucracy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Actually, you mentioned in your other talk that before the Berlin Wall came down, people could go to West Berlin without a visa, and that the Thai women went there and then got married with German guys. So is the Thai diaspora there dominated by Thai women who came there back in the day and stayed?
2: So um, like, I'm not like expert in like the legality. So I cannot say from which law book it is. Um, but, but I have researched some that basically... Um, you could come as a cultural performer or you could have some sort of a bit of letter Mm. and then you come to the airport and you get stamped to enter and you can Mm. stay for 90 days Mm. um, without sort of, I guess you don't have to do like visa uh, kind of like Mm. big, big back home, but you come here and you get stamped and you stay Mm. for 90 days. Mm. And this practice started, yeah, since the 60s, 70s. What happened is that in the beginning, they didn't need to marry someone because they have kind of mobility like they came they can even cross the border and re-enter you know that kind of stuff mm. and then they kind of create their own network so back then they were kind of more like family patterns and then since the uh, since the 89 90s there was a renewal of the whole um, legality because German become unified and so they need to at that point marry someone they need to marry German so they can become german and and keep this thing alive so, I think actually 1989, 90 is actually the turning point where became more women than quote unquote males because um, German male married exotic women. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Whereas, mm. and the other way, uh, a lot of Asian men are even now being seen as economically not stable. They are not the head of their household and stuff. So, it was also back then too.
1: That's very interesting.
2: But, I mean, I would not say that it's like one hundred percent. I'm sure there were a lot of you know discriminations and mm-hmm. I heard one case also that um like there were some women like Thai from Thailand landed in the airport and then they got called and they say they have to go back because they think that they are prostitutes. you know it's exactly mm-hmm. happening like right now, so mm-hmm. wow. I'm not saying that everything was free
1: yeah. so so what is the relation between? Because um, in West Berlin, it's most of the Southeast Asia diaspora is from Thailand and Philippines, right? Um, and then in East Berlin, it's more Vietnamese, right? From what I understand, what is the, what is the dynamic? What is the relation? Um, and you also wrote that there are segregated communities in thailand but actually not in berlin and i feel like that that's very similar to indonesia where outside of indonesia like there isn't like really any segregation but then in indonesia it's like very it's pretty it's pretty clear
2: <laughs> i mean ex- exactly i mean from what i said about this this east and westing, you know it's a bit also too general so it's just sort of, you know, we, we, take, we just take into account about the, the split of Berlin into, like, not just East and West, but even in the East, they have, you know, the French area, the British area, where they send soldiers and bureaucrats. And each area have their own, let's say, infrastructure and so on. Then in relation to American projects in Southeast Asia, you know, then you look which country are on which side and then you go to the map of Berlin and point it there. But, however, there are also a lot of cross-border things. And, and yeah, so there are even like also Vietnamese refugees in the West Berlin when they come from, let's say the South, you know, fleeing from the war. So this is just a very general that when we say like is, is this and that. Yeah, and also about segregation. Um, I mean, for example, I remember when I was in Bangkok, I rarely encounter like, for example, Filipinos or like Laotians. And since this project that I went to, you know, the Thai park that I helped them a bit and stuff, they were like, they were together. They saw stuff together. And we met also um, a couple, like one is Vietnamese, another one is Thai. And they spoke like incomplete German to each other, which is not bad. And I think it's like super cute how how they actually kind of, you know, work together. And for these people, you know, some people think it's identity politics, but it's not. Like, they, they don't even use the word, like, people of colors, But they mm. just somehow are working together because they share a certain social background. They work in gastronomy and stuff. Mm. So.
1: Well, I feel like people of color is also such a general term. Um, and then when you actually are what they label a person of color, you know that, you know, like... Like, for example, like, Indonesians have this, like, beef with malaysia malaysia like it's it's stupid but like there's this you know kind of competition so indonesians and malaysians would be like oh like we're we're different we're definitely not malaysian we're definitely not indonesian but over of course people are like oh you know everyone's just people of color everyone's just southeast asia Mm -hmm. yeah so I'm interested because like we, we did an episode with someone from Cambodia um, and we talked about how there's this, uh, what do you call it? I guess like um, Thai supremacy um, towards Cambodian. And then you also mentioned that most Laotians actually spent more time living in Thailand instead of Laos. Um, is that because of the secret war?
2: Um, I mean, with all its complexities, I mean, I guess it's like, um, yeah, it's, it, he is right in that sense. Like there's this, you know, because now Thailand is so modernized and all the surrounding nation is associated with modernity, with a bit of like middle-class bourgeoisie. And also plus you earn more in Bangkok, honestly. So it's kind of got associated with that and a lot of people rather want to come to Bangkok and try to find their jobs, their places. Which, you know, some of these are just fantasies. Like a lot of them come to Bangkok and get discriminated, they don't find jobs, dot dot dot. So yeah, there's this kind of we relationship there with Thailand. Yeah, I am completely ag- against the, the you know the Thailand as a country. And that's what we try to do in Untitled and working with activists also. That, um, and the thing is that usually Western people, Germans or Americans, don't know this. And they just think that, you know, all countries are the same.
0: Mm, and, yeah. and
2: stuff.
0: yeah on that i want to talk about identity in relation to food tourism and religion i feel like with food and tourism from the outside perspective from like westerners um, gaze i guess that there's like once they visit asia or southeast asia they have this type of like like a very shallow enlightenment because they only <laughs> spend like i don't know three weeks Six months, and then they were like, oh, okay, I know everything about Thailand. I know everything about Indonesia. Like, there's this guy uh, I saw on, like, one of the advertisements on YouTube that he spent six months in India, and then he came back to the United States and make um, business out of Americanized chai tea. I feel like, you know, there's, like, tons of Indian immigrants here, like, trying to make money every day, and this dude just went six months to India and then came back to his country and make money out of someone else's culture and food so in your archive you also talked about how identity being perceived by german media right and with all of that stereotypes so what are the stereotypes
2: oh i mean we can go on and on about the like um but also you know on on that note i mean apart from any stereotype that you can go from like you know especially when the word thailand i mean german government even said it that you know like they said to the opposition or something like, you know, now you can go to Thailand and they didn't say the word having sex, but that is the implication. Mm-hmm. So but we are pretty kind of known for this shit. And um, and I think like on that hand, what, what you said about the whole food business and, mm-hmm. and identity business, so to say, it is actually kind of true of like, you know, people who have a bit of economic backgrounds can brand, something that might not be theirs or could be a bit of theirs, but, you know, this is actually the co- a topic of class yeah. like who we'll have more money to brand mm-hmm. things. Yeah, And, um, so exactly what happened to that's what, I mean, this also goes to a topic of restaurants, you know, they. Like in, the, in this Thai park that we work in, a lot of people might see it as authentic, mm-hmm. which is, you know, cheap food on the ground, da, da, da. And yeah. some people, there's also the critique from the other side of like, is this really authentic or is this is really not? And I think the question should be more rather like you have to see the class relation that is in. Mm-hmm. And I think for these women, they deserve to do things and sell food in a price that will give them the most profit. And it's not about if you can, how much you can pay for, like, Mm. I mean, of course, a lot of people want to pay for cheap stuff, but my question is more, how much can these migrants earn to live their life? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh,
1: yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about that. And actually it's a question, like, is it a myth that if it's cheap, it's equals authentic or that if it's expensive it's automatically not authentic like there's this idea that oh authentic food is just like the ones where it's cheap and the place isn't really great and it's not fancy and like maybe it's like cooked by people who are not um who are undocumented or whatever um i don't know i'm just questioning that idea
2: and and rightly so i I mean, for me personally, I think authentic is is just defined by yourself. Mm. Um, It would trouble me when you put it on your selling menu that this is authentic to everyone. And I I do believe that, you know, what your family made might use different recipe completely Mm. from even your national recipe. So that's authentic in your family and, and, you know, rightfully so. But don't say that this is authentic to everyone Mm
0: -mm. I think I'm just curious about the identity of the food itself whether it's Indonesian food or Thai food because back home we call it uh, the identity of the food is the local food right but if I go to Indonesian restaurant here the identity of the food is like the food of the immigrant but when like Americans open like Indonesian restaurants what is the identity of the food again is it still like an immigrant food made by a white man, a white women It's very interesting to me.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, um, I think these are all like case specific. Even, not even just white males, but like there is, you know, even like supermarket, like Asian shop. Here in Germany, there's also two branches. And it's interesting that, that they have different aesthetics. So one has a bit more kind of trash, quote unquote, you know, like kitsch. And that can be associated to like Asian shipness, and another one mm-hmm. and they are, they both have the same price but another one is more like you know Japanese
0: mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm-hmm. black on white a bit mm-hmm. more sophisticated and these are all kind of you know fabricating mm-hmm. yeah. and it it just depends on if people truly believe that this is you know the, the identity that they claim or if people really think and um, okay it's it's just what they want to build on themselves which is rightfully mm-hmm. so and, and the question would be just like, you know, the power dynamics and the wrong, false representation that it might create. Yeah. Right,
0: right. In this new, like, formation of identity, more contemporary one, what are the struggles that you find is the hardest to... Because there are, like, identity projected by the others, whether it's, like, Westerners, whether it's, like, from Indonesian like me towards, like, a Thai like you. So what's the the hardest conception of identity that people have been put on you as a Thai or like most Thai people feel? Um,
2: the hardest, you mean the most horrible or the most difficult or what do you mean?
0: Like on Seeing Colors, you're talking about when you first moved to Berlin, when people ask you like you're from Bangkok and they say like, oh yeah, you're cool.
2: I mean, that belongs to it in this kind of... Um I mean, repeating on that podcast, I mean, when I live in Thailand, I never knew myself that I was Thai. I mean, and actually I was a bit too much against it, as I said, again, because it's, uh, you know, modern construction. Mm-hmm. Then I moved to Berlin and you realize that you are not just a um, brown person, but you are also Thai. And then everybody wants to stick to you like that. And that happened even in a quote-unquote safe space in like I club a lot years ago. I want to do it now, but it's not possible. <laughs> but... um <laughs> But, you know, if even in clubbing, that, you know, people just also like ask me, like, and then they just go on hours about Thailand. And that kind of annoys me sometimes because, like, you know, can we talk about what I want in my art project without mentioning Thailand? And, and that was sort of the cause of why I start Untitled was, was that, mm-hmm. okay, I would take your challenge. So let's say, um, I mean, this is not just reclaiming things, but just really like take your challenge and say, like, okay, I'm going to do some Thai stuff, mm-hmm. but, be prepared that it's gonna be a bit like hardcore, and mm. so we wanna go all the way against it. Mm. And I think my goal, I mean, just blah blah, my goal for the future is that we don't want to kind of just break away from Thailand, but mm-hmm. like see the the regional struggle together. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of leads me to why I am currently obsessed with the whole like co war narrative, which is not just Vietnam or not the secret war in Laos, but like literally local people's life. Because usually also even honestly in Bangkok, like when they talk about colonialism or imperialism, they also just talk about themselves, like mm-hmm. within the map of Thailand. And usually, I mean, when I live there in Bangkok, like they don't talk about, you know, how Southeast Asia as a whole suffer this very global form of problems mm-hmm. or how they actually work together to counter that colonialism. Yeah. This is usually missing from a conversation and they usually focus on national what yeah. national heroes. That's
0: also my question that like why we don't have this like sense of togetherness that European people have when they talk about, I don't know, politics, everything they talk about the region. But we don't have that. And then on um, on the turf war you also mentioned that in the previous generation, they don't have this urge to with connection with other Southeast Asians, right? And now the new generation. Now we try to, I don't know, reconnect. I guess to find each other again, and to understand and learning more about each other.
2: I think it comes from again bragging on the the Cold War time because you know you end up being side. I mean, although you have this non-aligned movement, but honestly, you know, you either on which side of the world, and you can be auto on capitalist side, which is both. You know, mm-hmm. um, so. I think back in that time when our nations, I mean, not Thailand, but other nations tried to be independent, you were just kind of stuck within this framework of Western power can give you something and you mm. end up then splitting each other. That happened to Malaysia and Indonesia, confrontasi,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, you know, yeah. and I think now we it took already like 50 years for us to realize now that that we need to kind of, yeah, actually find our own structure. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to do Yeah, let's see what future brings.
1: Mm. You're you're trying to do that through art, but that that's like I feel like that's Ruth's big um, question and goal about like why Southeast Asia is not united um, (laughs) in comparison to Europe. But actually, since you live in Germany and you have lived in Germany for like more than four years now. Do you think that's also a myth? Because I, I, I guess like I also feel like in within Europe, like there's there's also that like conflict. But like I don't know. I guess like somehow because they're all part of this like EU, which um, seems to like have so much political power that people don't see that they also like have a lot of you know internal hate and <laughs> conflict.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's exactly exactly that critique that, you know, EU is good for itself. It is kind of some some kind of thing, you know, but like it was also created to kind of mask this mm. internal conflicts that they are actually very fragmented. And, you know, when people talk about Europe, they talk about Western Europe, not Eastern Europe, not Romania. And I think Croatia might be now in mm. EU, for example. Mm. And, you know, they suffer also like financial instability that mm-hmm. EU cannot provide them. And actually the budget that is supposed to be for them, for the development country, even in Europe, are now relocated to support the stock markets of the Western part. So this is like kind of up situation of Europe that... That they just kind of in a cultural scene seem to be, I think, in yeah, in a cultural scene seem to be kind of more like flexible and united and solidarity by empty words, you know, but economically and deeply nationalistically they are. But also now there's a new form of right wing that, like, you know, they have this national up right wing framework but they somehow become sort of network of right-wing, which is interesting because you tend to think that right-wing hate each other, like between nations, mm. but actually they start to work together and it's, it's dangerous, I mean, it's scary. On this
0: note about um, the relations between the Southeast Asian countries, because I feel like with a lot of my friends back home, when they say, oh, I'm going to Thailand to have a vacation or something, I feel like the connection that they built before going to Thailand is created by some sort of kind of like Western idea of Thailand. Wild parties or like beach, like beach towns. But we're so close to Thailand, that's a loss in a way that we're closer to them than all of these European and non these Asian people. But why we have to route too far to connect
2: I mean, it's, it's it's a very complex issue, but like on that note, you know, it's the same from, from Thailand to others in the region. Like yeah. in, in education, we rarely know about Indonesia. And to be honest, I learned about the history mm. of, I mean, the complexity of everything when I moved here, let's say when I got out of university, mm-hmm. because none of that is spoken at all. Yes. And so, yeah, I mean, on that note, it's also kind of this, when you talk about this issue of like traveling and government, It's also kind of complex because on the one hand, you have this kind of mass media image of what it can be, be it Bali or be it Phuket. And then you have this kind of government thing. But the question is, um, like, I mean, I I ask this same thing to myself when I want to go to, let's say, a nation that is associated with homophobia. Actually, someone asked me, like, why do you want to go to a nation that's homophobic to support their tourist um, infrastructure? Mm -hmm. Like, basically, I pay them, you know, to go there. And it's an endless quest- I mean, it's an endless mm-hmm. self questioning because I don't know answer to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, um, it's just more about like what you plan to do there and where does your money go. That would be my only, you know, argument. So when I go to like let's say normally homophobic country, I would rather spend money to to help the queer communities to you know local things, much more than to go to national museum something. But this must also be taken into criticism that. Mm -hmm. There's also a class dynamic there. Not that usually I am higher class, but in that relationship, because I have more money, I can spend. So it's a kind of constant way to reminding yourself that although you think that is something ethically correct, deeply inside, there's also inequality there.
0: I mean, everything is like interconnect with like, I don't know, politics and everything class. But I mean, I I agree with you that I don't have like this, not love but like understanding of my own country before I came here I think the distance is giving me the chance to get to know my country better and Mm. also other countries um, in Southeast Asia Mm. but do you think that you know so back to uh, my argument about uh, the relations between identity and religions because I feel like in relation to race and nationality, identity is very like a religious prototype. Uh, so I feel like being here in the United States, I feel like I'm closer to my country in a sense that I understand my country more. But at the same time, a lot of people in Indonesia think like, oh no, you actually, you moved out of here, so you become westernized. So your identity is, you know, I don't know, there's this this rigid, uh, concept of identity still I think what about uh, in Thailand?
2: yeah I mean I mean you are definitely right I mean there's no difference I mean this is almost kind of universal ish mm-hmm. problems of the difference between you know difference for those who decide to move away or are forced to move away is um, mm-hmm. you have to create a new project completely which going back to what we talked much earlier about that these projects in Outside national framework are usually left unfunded, not mm-hmm. much support and not much recognized. And, and that's why I got into diaspora mm-hmm. studies. Uh, that's why I decided that I don't need to kind of directly become Thai Thai. Mm-hmm. I think for me personally, I also recognize that you know, even Thailand changes, like, you know, this whole standing to the national anthem might not be there anymore. So people there also try to change what identities can mean. It's really just our association. Do we associate what our families say to our nation or to everyone? Or we try to make this distinction of like, what family, my family thing might not be applied to my friends who are doing great stuff there. Mm-hmm. But also on your question of religion, um, which is a very important question, um, I think this also kind of creates Southeast Asia into a complexity because, you know, you have one hand kind of Buddhist supremacist countries Mm -hmm. and then then you have the more Islamic ones. And this creates different sets of research and understanding in regarding to to everything, not just queerness, which is what usually people think. But yeah, I mean, what, what fascinates, I mean, what frustrates me a lot is that people usually don't associate Buddhism with Supremacy with patriarchy.
0: Yeah.
1: Western people, maybe.
2: Not just in a yoga sense or something, or not even yoga, you know, in a kind of this um, green west, but in a kind of general thing. When Buddhism context or philosophy being kind of romanticized into, I don't know, some harmony bringing of the yeah. world. And uh, so let's see how, yeah.
1: Yeah. I guess Thailand is like very Buddhist and. Buddhism is deeply patriarchal, and yet there is, I, I mean, like, maybe this is also my own bias, but I feel like there's, there isn't really homophobia in Thailand the way there is in Indonesia, right? Like, trans women in Indonesia are, like, truly, 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 like, like, they face so much violence, Versus in Thailand, it's actually like you guys actually have a word for the trans women gender that is not derogatory. Yeah, right? I
2: mean, I mean, on that note, Buddhism used to have female nuns, a female monk, and in the discourse, they become extinct because the rule is that for the female person, if you want to become monk, you must be given allowance by a female monk. But since there's no female monk, then female person cannot become a monk. That's exactly the problem within Buddhist institution, mm. and you know, plus other things that there are a lot of monks that rapes and stuff. So not going there. And on the topic of trans person, like I mean, you are right in a way. Thailand is more progressive in that sense, but for trans person, it's like the third sex, petty um, which becomes like um, except in the legal case. The complexity of that. Before that, I would say i would say that it's hard still to compare. I mean, we can compare in a kind of you know casual sense of like that—that that is much more suppressed in Indonesia and, and stuff. And I, I agree that completely. But also, I think every countries have their own limitations and oppression that is very hard to compare to each other. Although casually we can say it, you know. And I mean, in Thailand, from what I know, and I think it might be still now, is the the issue of military conscription, which also is the same with other countries. And this sort of transition or being recognized as a transgender becomes a tool not to be transcripted. And it was actually very important. Like I have two of my friends who, like, they want to reassign that gender since they were young, but the point is they, took it so serious mm. before they reach um, the age that they have to conscript to the military. Because at that point, if they are recognized as being transgender, then means they are being sick. Then they don't have to join military, which is kind of fucked up. Mm. But that's sort of how people roll. Yeah. Mm.
1: That almost makes me think about, and this is like me just sort of like thinking out loud, but I wonder if, like, so Thai has like this, military regime going on, right? And then Indonesia in the past during the the dictatorship, it was also basically under a military regime. And there was more like erotic literature and porn. This kind of things was like a lot more open and allowed in Indonesia during that military regime. And then after the military regime, like people started becoming... Um, more conservative you know in terms of like sexual anything that has to do with like sex and also like gender identity became like super strict I mean like yeah I'm just like thinking out loud and like how it's interesting this whole like relation between a military regime and people's sexuality?
2: <laughs> I mean, first, I'm not like the complete expert in uh, queer histories of Thailand. I mean, there are some curators who do that. But from as far as I know, it's like, um, but this is actually very general. I think that during military regime, you know, you don't get to express your opinions, even they are homophobic ones or queerphobic, transphobic. So it's a lot happening that when it become quote unquote more democratic, like not really, but you know, then these opinions are being expressed and they found their spaces within the parliament. Um, whereas during the military regime, they have no places unless they are part of military and that, that will fuck everything up. Plus I think also during the harsh situations, every queer community know how to survive. And when we read things, you know, retrospectively, we end up, my thinking that is more kind of free, but actually that's how they are pushed to really mm. survive. And that's why it becomes so juicy and stuff. And it, it's the same when I, I visit, you know, even countries in East Europe. And, um, I say this as a tourist no? but I feel like being queer in East Europe is so juicy. Like, it's like what they are doing there mm. is like real stuff. They're saving lives. And in the West, you know, since they are becoming more dominant now, especially gay ones, then it's now much more about, like, you know, they're being in the magazines, they're being, like, in movies. And it becomes sort of less mm-hmm. sort of juicy mm-hmm. for me or, like, kind of real. Although it's rightly so because, you know, we need mm-hmm. equality in society. So, yes, go for it. But it's a danger of being the mainstream.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: But also, I mean, um, Berlin was famous for for the underground scene um actually during during the before the Berlin Wall fell failed there are a lot of you know clubs and and spaces for trans persons or queer persons and that was super interesting that even when they try to sell this like you know the whole club scene as their tourist stuff usually queer and trans perspective are deleted not even Why mentioned is that? if they are um, such a
0: big part of this community, why their perspective being diminished?
2: But I mean, I mean the queer one, not gays, you know, so, mm, um, so I mean like the, yeah, so I mean there was a lot of kind of gay parties happening also back then and I think they got really into a like dominant scene because it was most associated with um, what they think as a club culture, mm. which means um, you know, um, DJ set from thing in Detroit or the disco from Chicago or dot 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 mm. and, and I guess for the case of of queer or trans spaces, they might require maybe different type of music or different type of space and not as sort of, you know, like dark room and stuff. Because sometimes dark room can be also, you know, um, Mm. like some people don't feel safe in dark room even. Mm. So that's kind of understandably how sometimes they're not involved in this sort of history writing of Berlin, as far as I know, And, and also very white. On the other hand, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, and then, and then after, after the wall came down and then the club scenes and everything like back behind became more dominant, then you know, then you can just forget it. It's like kind of yeah. then become yeah. like everything. But rightfully so. I'm not saying that they don't deserve to be, I think like gay communities and deserve to have their place too. But my, my concern is sort of like, how can I support the other perspectives?
0: Yeah, I'm curious if, if Thailand is a person, what is going on in its head, basically? Because you guys are like pretty open about trans women, gay, lesbian, but you're not allowing a like same sex marriage.
2: I mean, also, you know, you cannot change your gender still. I mean, you can reassign to the, to the surgery. Oh, but
0: on the ID card, you're still.
2: Oh, yeah, you cannot change on your ID. But on the ID, so, right, right. So in a way it's not, mm-hmm.
1: like, right. I mean,
2: not as uh-huh. bad, but not as good. And yeah, I mean, when I lived back then, I was also, you know, being discriminated for my, my hair, which means mm-hmm. that I am not, you know, normal and stuff. So, and there, there I mean, there are things. so I think it's changing, um, and I think we we got one um, politician into the parliament, mm. and then she was kicked out. So it was like a very sad moment that the, comi- the LGBT committees failed to have. Uh, mm. They don't have the votes in the parliament for now, and they're trying to, yeah, hopefully lobby some cis guys who are sitting there. Um, but it's it's kind of difficult. Mm. But also there are changes. Like, I mean, the I think the head of mm. the um, how you call it, director union mm. is a uh, trans person. Um, Anusha if I'm not wrong I think she's still there and I think she's trying to change stuff so
0: Mm -hmm. right yeah. I I mean I hope so too but at the same time I don't know maybe I'm like caught up in my I don't know echo chamber here so I feel like oh we're all moving in a right direction all around the world but then suddenly the military coup happened in Myanmar and then what happened in Thailand and then back home we're like having a crisis all oh, is our precedence actually an authoritarian president? I am mean, just like is things are actually getting better or is it just on the surface it looks okay but like underneath is still like the same old
2: game. I think it's the same of, with Biden. Um, like, yeah. I mean, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Of you course. Know? like mean, some, no sometimes
2: question. it's like, of course, but you know, what what shit goes under the surface? Who knows?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, so, I think, I think, for me, I don't have much hopes in the in the kind of a government and the politics. But I, but I want to give our attention mm-hmm. and let say money and things to to the local communities, to queers, to I think minorities, artistic people that. Just to survive day by day,
0: honestly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious about the the taste of the art audience in Berlin. In the in the podcast on the scene color, you said like you're a slightly bit disappointed with finale. So I'm just like I'm curious like what's the what's the audience uh, attitude towards I don't know uh, more contemporary maybe Asian art
2: did, did you heard biennale or berlinale in that podcast Berlinale, Berlinale,
0: berlinale.
2: Oh, okay then then i spoke it correctly like i sometimes mix this
0: <laughs> and it's funny it's
1: funny when i heard that because here in the u.s people go go to berlinale and then they come back here and they're like oh you know like my film went to berlin and it's like so like i guess i was talking to ruth about this where i wonder if it's like if you are in Berlin, people don't recognize it as much. But then if you are not from Berlin and you went to Berlin for Berlinale, your film went there, that can be like your selling point. Kind of like my comparison is um, maybe like an Indonesian who like comes to New York and then he works in a kitchen in a restaurant but then in Indonesia, he's like, oh, my God, like, this guy is, like, really amazing. He can live in New York. But then in New York, he's just, like, every day he's just struggling, like, washing dishes. Um, that kind of, like, mindset where, like, I guess when you're in Berlin, it's different, you know. Like, people know the truth, maybe, that, like, oh, Berlinale doesn't really advance. Yeah,
2: I mean, I mean, that's a very complex issue. Like, um, I think it's, it's really this sort of, like, um, how people associate internationalism with privilege. Which actually sometimes is correct, but sometimes it's just the illusion of thinking that, thinking that people who have, only people who have privilege can move or, I don't know, present their works in other places and completely forgetting about the migrant movement that they did it completely without institution support. So that would be about internationalism, you know, and, um, and I think also there's also issue of countries that, that would be associated with um, you know, progress and, you know, things and countries that are not, like, imagine a, a German artist who have residency in Cambodia, like, so then, then he would be framed as, like, okay, he had, like, adventure, time, some sort of tourist visiting some local area, but it was, it might seem as like something exotic adding to his CV, but, like, not as a kind of progress of, you know, world stage thing. And... And on Berlinale, yeah, I mean, I I mean, I live here for quite, I don't know, six seven years, and I've never been like officially a part of Berlinale, and I don't know when I will. And you know, I think deeply of us. We want a bit of institutional mm-hmm. support to, I mean, to live, you know, and to step up. So I don't think it's a bad thing to want to be a part of something, but but the critique was exactly that that these big stages, not just Berlinale, also same with Sundance and stuff, they end up. They end up supporting international, or I don't know, sometimes exotic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, artists much more than local artists that just dying in their own yeah. town. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. But I what totally about agree. what about from the viewers' perspective? Yeah. In your perspective,
2: I mean, it's uh, it depends. I mean, this happened to Biennale, even not, the Biennale this last year that I, I was a bit a part of, like not working, but I was one of the in the workshop. And there were some people who went to exhibition to feel like they are being exposed to another culture and then that's enough. Mm. Um, and this, this, usually come from another type of audience, not from like a hipster tourist place, but more like from periphery or other towns, which are rightly so I think because, um, you know, for them, since they, in their area, they lack exposure to other parts of the world, then they mm. think that these big stage like Berlinale and, and so on, mm. give them that mm. and tend to also kind of, you know, put it down. And with uh, with might be the fault of the curator too, that everyone just frame it in national frame, mm. Mm. Chilean, mm. Filipino and stuff. Mm. Then it lacks the point that right. trying to make this topic relevant to even local, even white, lower class Germans mm. who don't understand right. like contemporary painting, you know. Same with film, mm. that, you know, they, it's really about how you present this film. Are you presenting it in, in a kind of typical way or you make it more complex? And usually when it's more complex, then it goes to the critics' corner, as they call it in big film festival. That's going to be a bit more, you know, more complex, but can be a bit also not accessible to everyone because they are using another la- set of language.
0: I mean, talking about curating, because you curate uh, the Thai park and organize Thai park, right?
2: Not not the park itself. I mean, the project about it.
0: The, yeah, the there's no Thai park, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs>
0: in the process of curating this event, are you more focused for Thai immigrant viewers that based in Berlin to come and see before it got locked down? Or, yeah, I want to know what's your uh, thought of process.
2: Um... It's, it was a long process. I have to give credits to my co-curator, Catherine peters who who, who is a German lady, but like, she has been super nice, like, super open. Um, and she actually helped me to get through it. Um, it's actually my first, if the first exhibition I kind of officially curate. Like, I did event management before, so I would not call it curating, you know, it's a bit different. But in that exhibition, it was sort of like, so no one have done, like, a proper, like artistic exhibition about Thai Park before. So it was the first time. And so in my mind, I was thinking a lot about the Thai visitors or people who have a relationship to the topic. Because actually, because we have to start this archive that I showed a bit in the talk at Turf Wars, um, which is much bigger, like, um, it's like super big. And, uh, and that, you know, I have to meet these families to maybe scan their old pictures and stuff. And then that's why I have to, it forced me to think about them. And it went well. I mean, in, in the archive section, we also have the part where people can write down their experience and what they think, like in the exhibition. And then we kind of collect that and put it in a book. So, yeah, um, we thought about that. But on the other hand, we thought about German public too. So, so we end up having three language exhibition: English, German, and Thai. And we were planning for a lot of events. We actually planned for a safe space event where we would invite these Thai park ladies to talk. So back then it was not clear yet if they could operate the park or not, or I mean, continue. Now, um, I, so I basically helped them to, um, so they released the, the, the district released an open call to find a manager of the park to make it official and, you know, everything on paper. And that happened last year. And I realized that none of the Thai park women apply because they don't have organization to do. So with a help from a lady from another great organization, Bang Ying, mm-hmm. we, we helped the Thai park lady to find organization and apply mm-hmm. to kind of bring it back to their hands. And we actually succeed. Um, it's just released. Um, it's just announced a few days ago that they got this project back. Ah, congratulations. So, yeah, so it's literally. In a formal way, yeah. That on the paper, it looks like another organization took over the park mm-hmm. and reorganized everything. But in that organization, it's the same lady. So that's what we did, you know.
0: So now they can sell food again.
2: They, they can at least try to figure out internal conflicts and set up their own new rules that have to be transparent.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so you spoke about the need for informality, right, in your other talk. And I was thinking about like how when people think about third world citizens who come to, quote unquote, the first world, the Western world, that they work in informal job sectors or in informal environments. And if Western people go to, you know, like Southeast Asia, then they work in the formal economy. But then I was thinking about it again (laughs) and I was thinking about how like in Bali, there are all of these like white people who they don't have a work permit, but then they just become a model or an influencer and then they like start selling products or like an ebook and like they don't, that's informal, right? They don't have like proper permit or anything or even like drug rings in Bali, like clearly they don't have like a formal permit paperwork for that. And then I started thinking about, like, in Bangkok, where, like, I mean, and, and maybe this is, I don't know, you can tell me if this is true or not. But a lot of people who go there for sex tourism, and then they end up setting their own sex tourism circles and promote it amongst, like, their expat circles or whatever. Um, and yeah, I guess like that just made me think about like food and sex and. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I love that. That is a that is like a like you know like a block like yeah. food and sex, <laughs> like literally. I, I see. It. It's so cool.
1: Food and sex in Bangkok and Bali. <laughs> um. But then, but then, like, I I don't know if that, I don't know if that is, like, also a myth, because, like, I mean, like, you just noted that um, it's not so much, like, about white people going to Thailand for sex tourism anymore, but now in the recent years, especially, it's Taiwanese and Hong Kong people who go to Taiwan, uh, who go to Thailand for sex tourism.
0: Also, people from inland, mainland China, I think.
2: I mean, I mean, it, it has never been so simple. Like, you know how how I put it. I, I also need to fix my word that like it's always kind of mixed, you know. Um, but like I mean, it's just sort of new, um, a new maybe a recent trend. For example, for for the market of um homosexuals and especially gays that, that, you know, it kind of boom, turned out to be that some Taiwanese gays think that Bangkok is more progressive than Taiwan. It's super perverse, but like, it was actually research and um, it's strange how how this thing came to be developed, like how, you know, it changed from the narrative of like being like um, subordinate, especially on the women's side, like horribly, you know, being subordinate, following the masters and stuff to, to this, another narrative of like freedom, which is kind of the same, you know, like sort of like, like a freedom in the jungle, like wildness. There was some description about this too, like going to Bangkok is like going to sex forest, in a way. And, um, and, and in reality, you know, it's both like, you know, of people have their sex life too. So I don't want to disregard that. Um but on the other hand, I think this whole this whole like traffic and and network of sex trafficking tourism thing was like long time ago when American troops set foot there and then they have this R and R treaty named Recreation Pact that they, they could also like set down business and do some stuff there as American troops. So it starts from that point and you know they import this taxi dance hall and the whole discourse stuff. And then later on, I think it got more complicated because then, you know, who has money then, then can build on this infrastructure, it started by a lot of American force. Um, so, so yeah, it's got to be what it is now. But on the other hand, there's a lot of, like, voluntarily sex work, which are not, which is not sex trafficking. And we also have to recognize that and see this complexity. Sometimes, you know, it gets blurred. And it happened to this organization that they don't want to be named. I mean, they, they want to be named, but they don't want their people to be named because it's, you know, but they, they work for, it's called Bundy. Um, they, they are refugee house for women. And usually their customers or these women get misunderstood as being victim of sex trafficking. That's why they deserve to have their place because they are victims. In the reality, they chose. They want to, and they are ready to risk. Yeah. And it's just that structure didn't support them. Yeah. So, this kind of miscommunication and misunderstanding thing.
0: What is your definition of informality? Can you elaborate that more in relation to the Thai Park project?
2: It depends on who can define it. And I think it's just a tool. I I would see it more like a tool or like Mm -hmm. there exists informal space because the formal space don't have enough place for everyone and within informal space, you know, be it white person or Thai person or people of color, black person, it's a tool to, to be able to achieve something. It's a flexibility. And that's why I hope and I wish that, you know, there will be more recognition and funding even for for informal activities. And this sounds a bit contradictory, you know, like how can you fund something that's informal? informal yeah. But, but, you know, it's, it deserves some sort of, you know, especially informal made by people who are not privileged, mm. and not necessarily kind of funding from the white savior or men or something, but more like you know, if local people sub- support that and can be a part of. But also at the other hand, you know, the uh, informality comes with the sense of self-protection also because um, a lot of people don't feel safe mm. being a part of general crowd. And, you know, same score with diaspora, why our first generation parents end up not, they contact with a lot of white world, but then they prefer creating their own world, mm. end up creating like Chinatown, mm. Tai town, Korean town. Mm. Um, and it's exactly because they need this protection and, and flexibility and informality. And sometimes by trying to formalize it up, then it's not about authenticity, but it's about sort of taking flexibility away from this structural inequality that they needed.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so that's how I would see it.
0: But I think it's going to be hard with the rise of uh, right-wing movement in Germany, to, right?
2: You mean to formalize?
0: To this. to have this informality, or even to have like the space.
2: You are right. I mean, the, like basically one of the initiatives that, so this Thai Park practice, has been there for the I don't know the end of say, the end of 80s 90s. Yeah, um, and there was a initiative burger park, uh, burger initiative Poison park, which are made from right wing people, people who vote for right wing before the AFD party exists even. Mm. So they campaign against the Thai migrants who use this park. And because the park name translates back to German is Prasia, which is like their thing. Mm, Yeah. So it's related. And I don't know how they move now. Um would be interesting in trying to track down what do they think about Mm -hmm. this new, you know, new change that the Thai Mama now have their autonomy over their park. So how would they react? I don't know.
0: Yeah. Should we ask our last question?
1: We normally ask what are misconceptions about thailand that need to be dismantled there's so many <laughs> Every,
2: what i say is everything but <laughs> like literally everything Um, I, like
1: maybe what is the biggest one
2: uh, um, everything
0: <laughs>
2: um, oh god i i, I oh god how, how to choose um
0: but the one thing that bugs you all the time when someone says something about thailand
2: they say that thailand is progressive mm. I mean, of course. I mean, you know, in comparison, rightly so. But like what I said earlier about, but the whole thing about Buddhism, which is also a com- um, hybrid, like Buddhist animistic ones, and but how Buddhism destroys um, local animistic practice or try to homogenize it mm. and national narrative and everything, and and this kind of. So, I mean, you know, people tend to, when they say it's progressive, when they think like, you know, katoi is like an official word and everybody's fine with it. For me personally, it's almost feel a bit like disregarding my feelings or some of my friends' feelings who still have to suffer for for that kind of discrimination. Not as much as in some countries, Mm -hmm. but still does in in that context, you know. So that would be one thing that I hope Mm -hmm. people know more about but nothing in this world is actually progressive. Not Germany. Not Thailand. I
0: agree. Nothing is like ultimately. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great answer. Um, our second question is: What is your favorite Thai food?
2: <laughs> um, like, um, it's called homo, which is um, like um, banana leaves or or something. Um, like a like a little thing so
0: it's wrapped in, in banana
2: leaves. yeah it's wrapped in it and it's like um, curry cake mm. it's um, I don't know how to put it in English but like it's sort of yeah literally like um, curry cake so it becomes solidified but it's a curry and they put fish inside it and the mm. cabbage and then steam the whole uh, thing with banana leaves uh, is
0: it the same with chang, so, Alexandra But ba- chang has rice
1: right um, yeah Oh, and right. I was actually thinking like um pepes pepes ikan where it's like there's fish and all of these like spices but I think pepes also has rice right
0: No no
1: I mean no, I didn't no? So. so is is that like the the this, just the fish inside the banana leaf Uh okay but no so- like no sauce right? I mean
2: but these foods and none of them are also like intrinsically like hardcore Thai or uh, Indonesian, you know, there's a lot of yeah, changes, mm-hmm. there's different recipes and um it's also a hard question that like I don't even know if it's really, really Thai. And mm-hmm. my question is that yes, it's not, but then mm-hmm. who cares? Because like in the kind of who cares in a kind of positive way, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, because yeah. it doesn't have to be defined as Thai, but it's just my favorite dish, which is this thing.
0: Yeah.
2: Solidified curry cake. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs>
0: no but i it's interesting because i heard you you talked about how patai is is just just basically not Mm -hmm. it's like invention like a like american invention right or british invention i forgot Um, but it's not originally all the common foods are
1: inventions i feel (laughs)
2: I mean, it's not. I I would not say. I mean, again, it it was simplified. Mm. Um, neither completely invention nor something super original. Just sort of, it was uh, it was um, instrumental. Like the name became instrumental during the nationalizing time that mm. it, became, it became to be called pad Thai. Mm. Um, whereas originally it could be called like um, Chinese noodle, like pad means mm. to pan the noodle, uh. and. One of the researchers said that it could originally come from Chinese merchants who, you know, imported this type of noodle in and then it got renamed during the nationalizing time to, um, how you call it, speak to the market because everyone wants something Thai. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's nothing original.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny because like most of my, I don't know, American friends here, whenever we go to Thai, uh, Thai restaurants, they're like, oh yeah, I'm just going to get Pad Thai you know, but yeah, knowing this new information, I was like, ah, interesting.
2: No, I I agree. And I mean, I mean, even just talking about just Pad Thai or like Indonesian food, when you talk about one dish, it's not the same all over the world mm. what you find in Bangkok in Berlin in New York um, don't taste the same the ingredients
0: are different mm-hmm.
1: yeah based on like yeah so there's a there's a Thai restaurant here in New York and they label themselves the anti Thai space because <laughs> really so, yeah yeah fish cheeks oh. um it's in soho and they specifically do that because they're sick and tired that people in the West, like they think Thai food is just Pad Thai. That's it. And so over there, you actually find the really good food that normally you don't find in Thai restaurants. So like the fish, like the steamed fish with like the sour sauce or like the fish curry. Um, I love going there because, because it's literally all the Thai food that is not available in normal Thai restaurants. Because normal Thai restaurants, they're just like, oh, let's do something that a lot of white people are going to buy, which is Pad Thai, right? Or Pad Ki Mao. Pad Pad Um
0: But
2: also on that note, you know, um, I mean talking to people who, especially like unprivileged migrants who run restaurants, mm. they also have to think in that way too, that, customers. that in customers, and, and also when you order ingredients, yeah, yeah. you order um, wholesale. Mm, mm. So when you think about the menu, you think about wholesale and what actually people order the most, otherwise it's go bad mm. or rot. Mm. Yeah. And hence, that's why the varieties of food sometimes is not too, too diverse. Because it's, you know, based on this logic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, San, do you know um, this Vietnamese artist um, in Germany? She made a, an exhibition about German bureaucracy for Southeast Asian immigrants, particularly for Vietnamese immigrants.
2: Um, which one? So, yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: I forgot where we met, but we are connected. Ah, Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's
1: cool. I, I really want to, because she talked about like the US, um, the helicopter pads that the US used when they were invading Vietnam. They used the same thing to build the border wall for Mexico. And I'm oh, like, wow. Fuck. so they kept it all of this time? Like Vietnam War was like the 1968, right? And And like they still kept it. All this time. I'm just like surprised.
2: I mean I mean on that note, like I I was actually um I was actually in the military for three years. That's that's a big shit. But um just wanna say that we use the guns and that guns was from Vietnam War time too. Wow. So like people actually keep shit wow. and um, you know
0: because they don't have fund to buy like new guns or because they love vintage stuff
2: <laughs> i mean it's it's what's i think it's idea? cheap for them and you know it's for it's for like military training so like mm. you know not to use in real life mm. and it's like very shitty gun like you you have to put one bullet each to to every mm. shot mm. so you cannot do like a whole thing mm-hmm. so it's a kind of for oh. students you know
0: so what's the age of like the mandatory service to like join the military in in, in thailand is it like 18 yeah like yeah. the
2: I mean I mean, but I I join it early. There are you can choose two programs. One is you join it later and you you do kind of like non student training, which is a bit harder. I mean more fucked up. And then there's this program that you would join it early and longer, but in a kind of student frame.
1: Honestly, like that kind of like forced military service, like I think that's really fucked up. And like, I know Korea, like Korean people who they, you know, some of them said like they have flat feet or they don't have like 20-20 vision and that's how they get out of the military. It always has to do with like some kind of quote unquote sickness.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what I meant about the, in the discourse of transgender.
1: Yeah.
2: That's also, I don't know. I mean, even yeah, yeah. there was a K-pop singer or something that got chit-stormed because he didn't join the military or he cheated it.
1: really oh
2: yeah and and it was fucked up like i mean what the fuck like you should go all against it not like loving the military what the fuck
1: the thing is i think so many people in the world love the military i think there's so much cultural propaganda like all of these films talking about oh how the military save the nation and things like that that like normal people they don't understand what the military actually does until you know, maybe like a family member has like a personal experience, but like normally that's that's what I. That's my. Normally,
2: people you know. don't know that also military-funded scholar projects, like back in Vietnam War, mm. it was you know that's what they call it, like you know academic military complex.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: That it was a direct relationship between the two. Mm. The yeah fuck up world.
0: I mean, the world is always fucked up, I guess.
2: Oh, it's called Podcast. depressing podcast. <laughs>
0: depressing podcast. Well, welcome to depressing Some, podcast.
2: Someone should do that.
0: <laughs> Just kidding. We hope you're not depressed listening to this podcast, but enlightened about the truth of the world and curious to learn more. As always, we encourage you to dig deeper about the topics we talked about.
1: You can check out Sarn's film, which have gone on to various film festivals, including
0: Rotterdam. If you are in Berlin, check out the Thai food market at Thai Park. Sorn is creating a queer Asia film festival in Berlin and also working on a new queer sonic activism project. So look out for those as well as future events with his collective Untitled.
1: Thanks for listening and until our next feast,
0: maybe try some homok.